on this episode of Rebel Spirit Radio. One of the, you know, common kind of gifts, if you will, that people get is healing, the mm -hmm. ability to heal. And whether that's physically or emotionally or whatever, and that's a very valuable thing too. It, maybe it doesn't bring the fame necessarily <laughs> yeah. that you could get from some other aspect of being very psychic, but it's it's a very necessary gift or ability that that some people will develop. Mm -hmm. My my uncle actually told me he says one of you know maybe the first things that you should do is like focus on on developing healing, mm -hmm. but just let it be whatever you're supposed to be to the universe or whatever, you know, let it, let it be for the, to, to be a greatest service and greatest personal growth for what you're supposed to do on your path. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by author Mark Ireland to discuss his latest book, The Persistence of the Soul, Medium, Spirit Visitations, and Afterlife Communication. Mark talks about being the son of the internationally known psychic medium Richard Ireland, some of his own psychic experiences, developing a process to certify psychic mediums, pseudo-skeptics and debunkers, and how psychic mediumship can aid healing in the grieving process. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Mark Ireland is the co-founder of Helping Parents Heal, an organization with more than 24,000 members that assist bereaved parents worldwide. He has participated in mediumship research studies conducted by the University of Arizona and the University of Virginia, and he currently operates a medium certification program. He is the author of Soul Shift and joins me today to discuss his latest book, The Persistence of the Soul, Mediums, Spirit Visitations, and Afterlife Communication. Mark, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you. I just took a drink of water and I went down the wrong pipes. So <laughs> I had to mute myself for a second there. Oh, no. Oh, I hope you're okay. I'm good. You're okay. Thanks good. for having good. me. It's yeah. Good to well, be here. Well, thank you. I'm 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 happy that you're here, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you. I enjoyed your book, The Persistence of the Soul, quite a bit. It's a very personal book, which I really appreciated. And you also have this kind of a scholarly approach at points, which mm -hmm. I also yeah. appreciated. So it was a nice balance between the personal and kind of the academic. Yeah, um, I tried to weave the two together. So I showed a lot of myself and my ex personal experiences, but then try and support those with, you know, the academic side where research has been done to support those things too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I definitely want to talk about some of the research, but I thought that we could begin. The book begins with a chapter called titled Catalyst, and it's about the death of your son, Brandon. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering if maybe you could speak a little bit about what led you into investigating mediums and afterlife communications you know there are other parents who have been through this and that serves as a catalyst for them to look into this the difference with me and my life is i grew up with a father who was actually a prominent psychic and medium counseled people like may west who i got to meet when i was 19 years old and glenn ford and david jansen and even the i believe the eisenhower family since i have a card from amy eisenhower so I grew up with this stuff and it was just second nature. I knew it was real because I live with it every day and saw it in day-to-day -day life manifesting, whether it was my dad stopping my older brother from doing something he didn't want him to do or or some sort of mediumship message coming through. I, I, I always, ha always had that there as a foundational piece to my belief set or knowledge set or whatever you want to call it. However, not many of us want to be our parents. So well, my dad was this uh, kind of celebrity psychic medium and also a minister of his own church. I took a different path and a real conventional one. I you know, got a degree, went into the business world, got married at a young age and had a couple of kids. So fast forward to my son, Brandon's, uh, when he was 18 years old, <clears throat> one particular day, he decided to go on a hike uh, in the mountains behind our home in Scottsdale, Arizona. And for some reason, that particular day, I had a really uneasy feeling about it. I almost had like this premonition kind of thing happen. And I tried to talk him out of going. And he said, he says, we're going, dad. In other words, like, stop worrying. Uh, but 
you know, later that day, I got a uh, distress call from our older son, who the boys who were with Brandon had tried to connect with. Their service on the mountain was intermittent, and we rushed back around, back across town to get there. By the time we got to the base of the mountain, there was a swarm of cars, ambulance, fire truck, and then a helicopter. And a short time later, we learned that Brandon had passed, although we had were given no information about the cause of death, and no one seemed to know anything. The closest I could get was his best buddy, Stu, who had tried to revive him for 45 minutes unsuccessfully, just told me that he had, that before he passed, that Brandon had noted he had a rapid heartbeat. He felt like his heart was beating fast and his arms were kind of numb. Then he, then he vomited. And then a short time later, he says, I have to lay down. And he laid down. And then his, at that point, his eyes rolled back. And, and that's basically what had happened, you know. And then just to kind of say why it was a catalyst to pull me back into my dad's field, you know, that was something that comforted me early on, even though you're in total shock after your kid passes, you, you still look for some, you know, clues to what's going on. And then for me, I didn't have to rely just on a religious belief that requires blind allegiance, but rather I had had knowledge and personal experience that I leaned on. And my father had passed by that time, but I had an uncle with similar abilities. And so he was one of the first people I spoke with. And he said, can I do anything for you? And I just said, well, if you get any kind of message or anything that you could share, I'd really appreciate it. And it was like two, I think three days later, I was in the mortuary making arrangements and we connected by cell phone. And he said, hey, Mark, I've got something to share with you. He said, oh, last night I tried to connect and I couldn't get anything. But this morning while doing my meditation, your dad came to me and he was just as clear as ever. He has visited me several times since he passed, um, but it had been quite a while. He wanted you to know that uh, he was there when Brandon passed and that he helped him adjust and cross over. Brandon was a little confused in the beginning, but your dad helped him get settled and that Brandon wanted you to know you were the best parents he ever could have had, which is the fluffy part we like to hear. But what came along with that was, your dad said Brandon's death was caused by a lack of oxygen in his bloodstream that causes heart to fail. And we didn't have any results yet. Two days later, after that, I talked to the physician who conducted the autopsy, and she told me that Brandon had suffered a severe asthma attack that caused his lungs to stretch to the point of almost meeting in the middle, which only happens in cases of drownings and severe asthma attacks. That resulted in a drop of blood oxygen level and subsequently cardiac arrest. So my uncle actually told me that two days before I got the official results. So that was kind of the first thing that brought me back on that path. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm I'm very sorry for your loss. I just wanted to say that I have a really good friend that lost her son. He was maybe a year or two older than yours. Um, <clears throat> but I know how kind of devastating that's been. But I also know that they've not, as far as I know, she and her husband haven't reached out to any mediums, but they see signs. They claim that they get messages and you kind of address some of this, like with music songs and whatnot. And, and that's pretty phenomenal, I think. And she has reported other people around them also experiencing the same thing. Yeah, we've had a lot of signs. I probably had more than my fair share of of confirmations from a wide array of ways, um, not just through mediums, excuse me, but personal direct experience from uh, these kinds of signs like songs and music, even a license plate that was unbelievable. I mean, which on the 10th anniversary of his passing, he had a nickname and this license plate that I stumbled upon in a parking lot had his nickname initials. That's what it was. It was three initials. And then the number 10, which was how long it had been. So crazy stuff like that. And, and and a variety of other things, as you know, having read the book. Yeah. So this was the catalyst for you to really begin exploring ship in greater detail than what you ever did before. I mean, you know, you had your dad, was your dad ever tested? Yeah. You know, it's been hard for me because this has been so long ago to pull this stuff up, but I had, I have actually reached out to a number of researchers at Duke University, Sally Ryan, who's the daughter of J.B. Ryan, to see what she could find. Unfortunately, the, the cataloging system there doesn't really exist. They've got 
boxes and boxes and boxes of stuff uh, unorganized in a, in a um I talked to P or reached out to Peter Mulas, who's in uh, Vienna, Austria, because my dad had talked about being tested there, also at the at, at, at McGill. So each one of these, I got a little piece that brought me closer to it. But I, I've never really had the gold nugget. I guess the closest thing I had to a gold nugget was, uh, someone sent me uh, an article that appeared in a 1972 issue of the Tuscaloosa News or Tuscaloosa Times newspaper. And that one talked about the second man in command at the Duke University Parapsychology Lab back at the time, Helmut Schmidt. And he, his claim in the article was, you know, we probably could have had even better results and more compelling results in the lab had we tested professional psychics instead of just students. I think the implication there was J.B. Ryan wanted to test more just the average person, whereas you know, I know from experience that there's a wide range of ability. Some people have way more ability than others. So you're going to get better results if you use them. But I think he was also afraid at the time of being hammered by skeptics mm -hmm. of his of his work. And so if if the results were too good or some professional psychic had come in, he might have they might have said, oh, you were tricked in some way. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, so but Schmidt's contention was we should have used more. You know, we should use more professional psychics. I think the results would be better. And then as an example, he gave me a test that he did on my dad. So Duke unofficially tested my dad okay. in a in a public venue where my dad was doing a psychic demonstration with 10 strips of Johnson Johnson medical tape over his eyes, three black opaque blindfolds and more tape underneath uh, here. So there's no way he could see. Hmm. And uh, Schmidt, what he had done was he went to three different tables of spectators or people that were in attendance and asked each one for a number. And with a red pen, he wrote, first one gave him three, then the second one, eight, and the third one, five, if my memory serves me correctly. So three, eight, five. He put he puts that into a sealed envelope and writes on the outside, tell me what's inside. And I believe he did that in, in another colored pen. At least that was how I read that or assumed that was the case. Anyhow, so my dad, as his typical process would be, would be going through the papers, touching them. Uh, probably through psychometry, connecting with the person who it belongs to, but giving them a lot more information than is written down, like, you know, first, last name, situations with jobs, romance, childbirth, all this kind of stuff. He got Helmut Schmidt's envelope, and without opening it, he says, oh, you want to know what's inside? It's the numbers 385 in red ink. Mm -hmm. And wow. so Schmidt said, you know, the odds against chance of this are millions to one, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's the best piece I've found. Of, in terms of his testing, but I had a lot of the other people seem to know who he was and that he may well have been tested, but I've not been able to get the Holy grail right. and, you know, and, and maybe back then too, it would have been really hard to get that into a scientific journal as well, because a lot of this testing happened in the, in the sixties. Right. Right. So I wanted to ask for just a little bit of clarification before we go any further. And the clarification I want is the terminology, and I know there are a lot of different things like clairsentient, clairaudient, clairvoyant, and whatnot, but what I'm really curious about is kind of the difference, if there is any, between, say, like a psychic, a medium, and then psychic medium. Yeah, I think really any any medium is a psychic medium because it's been said that all all mediums are psychic, but not all psychics are mediums. So, and you know, this, our terminology or our attempts to yeah. box things in as humans is kind of funny right. to me too. Yeah. Like, well, how does it work for you? And how does it work for you? And you know, what you call clairsentience or clairvoyance or clairaudience, maybe the lines are kind of blurred, but in general terms, I'd say the idea here is that a psychic is someone who can give you information without sensory input that's pertinent and accurate, whether it's precognitive, which my dad did that a lot. And I have cases where, you know, validated precognitive things that came to pass exactly as they were said, or whether it's telepathic, you know, maybe mind to mind with, with a living person or psychometry. Like I said before, you it's, grab somebody's watch and you read the energy and then you're able to share information. But usually the psychic, the goal that the psychic has is to give the person some sort of feedback that provides some sort of guidance or reassurance or, or whatever. 
The medium, on the other hand, is someone who I would say has a, a different level of psychic aptitude that goes to the extent where at least the assertion is they're, they're having a communication with discarnate person, spirit, soul, whatever you want to call that, um, whatever it is that, that's in us that survives death. Um, and typically that's assumed to be telepathically, but you know, it may or may not be that case. You know, the, the mediums, as you know, from the chapter I had on the interview with the mediums that I had really described a wide range of how they get information. And I've had personal experiences with it too. I, I think I had in there where I had been invited to speak at this church in San Francisco, a spiritualist church there. And then I was having Tina Powers, a medium friend of mine, accompany me. So I was going to give a talk and she was going to give messages to the congregation. But she started bugging me like, hey, Mark, I think you're going to get a message to share with the group there. Will you do it? I'm like, sure. Well, she repeatedly kept bugging me about this. And I didn't know why. But even the day we you know, walked into the church, she reminds me again. I said, yes, Tina, if I get something, I'll share it. And so I go in and sit in this waiting area for about 30 minutes and try and quiet my mind and meditate a little in preparation for my talk. And while sitting there, this name pops into my head, Max. And then immediately after that, the name Maxine. Now, I didn't see that. I didn't hear that in an auditory way. It came to me like an idea or, you know, like a memory or an idea just popped in. So I didn't know whether to think anything about it, but that's all I got. Now, this church was founded in 1922, I think, or 24 by a woman named Florence Becker, who by all accounts was very similar to my father and her abilities. She passed away in 1970. So with that known, you know, I go up to give my talk. And at the very end, I just tell the group, I said, hey, you know, Tina made me promise that if I got anything, I'd share it. So do the names Max or Maxine mean anything to anyone here? And the, the pastor's jaw dropped and he's like, well, Max and Maxine were twins born to the church founder, Florence Becker. They were stillborn and grew up on the other side in spirit. He says, I think we know who is here right now. And then, then he said, you know, that's a secret that's only known by a few of the old church board members. He then took me upstairs to show me a painting that I think Florence Becker was the artist of. It was a landscape picture with a winding road. And at the end, he says, see those two little figures? That's Max and Maxine. Wow. So sometimes it's such a subtle little thing that mm. you could easily discard. And I could have said, that doesn't mean anything. It's my imagination, but yet it's a high meaning. Now, the other mediums, maybe they have different ways of getting the information. Maybe it's more, maybe more auditory in some cases. Most of them say, though, with clear audience, they don't necessarily hear it like it's in their ear, but they hear it inside their mind. Mm. So, and if you think about how the ear works, it really is converting <laughs> Uh, sound waves into brain signals. So maybe it comes through in a, just a different way. And the clairvoyance, I can do some clairvoyance, but usually I have to shut my eyes and then I'll get visuals in my mind's eye. And then you just think you're making it up, but it turns out it's pertinent to the person. So other people will work with their eyes open and actually see something outside of themselves, like when Linda Williamson that I described. But where these lines blur, I mean, clairvoyance is typically considered, you know, some visual method of getting getting information, whether eyes open or eyes closed. Clear audience would be like the hearing. Clear sentience is kind of a wide description that might be like, okay, I smelled tobacco from a pipe, you know, kind of thing, or I felt something, I felt my heart hurt, and the person had a heart attack. And then there's other things like, you know, remote viewing is a big term today, especially since the U.S. government invested so much money using remote viewing people in the, in the CIA to try and spy on the Russians going back several decades. And to me, that's really clairvoyance at a distance. It's just it's another form of clairvoyance. So there's there's all these different descriptions, but really they come down to human descriptions of phenomena that we don't fully understand. Right, right. Yeah, I guess that I was really kind of curious about the, the why to go see a medium or to choose someone. I, I have spoken to psychics before, some good, some not so good. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that I've ever spoken to someone who was a medium. My understanding was usually that they are going to be accessing those who have passed over. Right. And the, the purpose of seeing a medium would be to establish that communication, not necessarily to go to find out if I'm going to get the job or something like I that. 
it's, you know, I would say it's 90% of the time or more, it's going to be for grief. Yeah. In, in my case, it, it was very healing to connect with my son in that manner, even though, you know, I know things are different than they were before just, to, and, and I believed he still existed in some way, but to have that connection, even if it's brief to get those validations of things that no one else knows, you know, uh, is healing. Dr. Julie Beichel of Winbridge, she has done a lot of work. I don't know if you've had her, had her on the show. She might be a good guest for you at some yeah. point, but she not only studied mediums under controlled conditions to validate their ability to bring through anomalous information with no sensory input. Um, she did another study on the effect on the grieving. And what she found was it's actually more effective than therapy alone by far. But when blended with therapy, it could be a very effective tool. Now, a bad reading, <laughs> it can be damaging. Yeah. So yeah. you have to go to somebody good. And that's tricky. And that's really why I know we'll talk about the certification program later. But that's really why that exists. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's incredibly helpful to have resources like that because, you know, and you describe one that is fairly egregious in the book of someone who had gone to see a medium and was told all sorts of nasty things. And so I think resources like that will be, would be incredibly helpful. And the research that Dr. Baishel, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, yeah, the way right. uh, Research Institute is doing, I think is really important. And it made sense when I read that in your book. It's like, well, of course, that would be one of the best things to help with grief. Yeah, it's the hope element. Yeah. Really, and I think there's a lot of parts to healing grief that are involved, but that's a big one. And and if you're a secular atheist and you think there's nothing more, then you're going to try and get better, but you'll always be missing that hope piece because, yeah. you know, if, if you're just a materialist and you think that physical reality is all there is, you're probably never going to get completely well, you know, yeah, or be able to yeah. be highly functioning going forward in life. I'm not saying some people haven't been able to do, but I haven't seen many of them. Right. When I think that it's important also that what you describe in the book and you discuss several mediums that you're not just getting vague information, you know, and this isn't, you know, what many critics and we'll talk about the skeptics or, you know, the pseudo skeptics here in a little bit are would refer to as cold readings, but you're getting very detailed, very specific information and like you explained with your experience at that church in San Francisco, it's often things that just aren't known. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, definitely. I, I don't, I think the thing is where I would agree with the skeptics, there are frauds out there. So I have yeah. to be honest and open about that and admit right. it, there are some frauds, but I think a lot, there are a lot more deluded people that think they are mediums or want to be mediums than there are frauds. Right. So really to separate the wheat from the chaff is, is the, is the critical thing to do here. Cause there are some, in, you know, immensely gifted people. And even through the testing I've done with the certification, I see a wide range of people who have passed, but, you know, from people that are passing at 70% to those who are passing at 98% on my scoring method. And even outside of my program, I know some phenomenal people that I refer, refer people to, you know, they're too busy. They don't need to go through my program. I'll still refer people to them because I know they performed at a high level. I think maybe one of the best examples I gave in the book was at the very beginning when I talked about Deborah Martin's work. Um, Debbie Martin is a friend of mine. She's a medium. And there was one particular day I was at work, <clears throat> my day job, and I was contacted by a friend in Sacramento, California, and I was in Phoenix. Uh, her brother just passed in a motorcycle accident. She needed to talk to me. And that's all I knew. I knew nothing but that. But later that day, about noon or one, I was scheduled to drive up to see Deborah Martin in North Scottsdale. So on the drive up, I call my friend Linda in Sacramento and say, hey, look, I, I can't talk to you right now, but I'm on my way to see uh, Deborah Martin. She's a friend. I'll call you back when I'm done. So I get to, and, and nothing more was conveyed to me other than she lost a brother in a motorcycle accident. That's it. I get there to Debbie's house. She lets me in. And the first thing I say to her is, it's kind of interesting that I'm with a medium right now because a friend of mine just lost her brother. And I didn't say how or anything else. And she said, well, it's no accident because I'm supposed to talk to her. I'm like, okay. I said, do you want me to call her now? And she said, no, 
let's do what we plan to do. And then we'll get back to that. And what we had planned to do that day was my dad had an unpublished book. We could touch on this later. And I was writing a forward to it. And she had some thoughts, intuitive thoughts come to her about the approach I might want to take. So we did all that. And then I said, do you want me to call her now? And she goes, well, I would, but I have to go get my daughter from school. So why don't you and I just sit down um, and we'll just see what I can get. So I sit in one chair, she sits in another. And immediately she says, um, well, I, he's, he says to me that he died in a motorcycle accident, was killed instantly and suffered no pain. Um, and then he shows me, so I knew she was on target with that, which was amazing in and of itself, but theoretically she could have used telepathy with me to get that information. Then she started giving me other information that I didn't have a clue about, mentioning the little kids, mentioning bath time, mentioning a red ribbon around his casket. So, and a bunch of other stuff. I get back in the car after this, I'm driving back. I call Linda and I said, Hey, you know, she said, she did identify that your brother died in a motorcycle accident. She said his soul left his body immediately. He didn't suffer. And she said, yeah, he was killed instantly. I then bring up some, she said, the little kids. And she says, oh, well, he had children that during a period of his time, he had a drug problem. So me and my husband took care of those kids. And we called them specifically the little kids. And their favorite activity was bath time. And they'd have water wars with toys and stuff. And his motorcycle buddies bought a red ribbon that went over his casket. There was some other stuff too. I think he he thanked her. And maybe this was later because later on, Debbie did connect with her and give her a full reading. But he had, she had, he had identified, thanked the sister for changing the music from country Western, which he hated to the hard rock that he loved and just on and on. So to me, that was pretty remarkable because, you know, she's given me detailed specific information that's later validated and it's stuff that I didn't know. So I was actually serving as a proxy sitter in that situation. Yeah, it's very impressive. And it also seems like, I think that you mentioned some cases where mediums will reach out to people because they feel that compulsion and they're like, I've got a message. I'm not going to charge you. And, you know, and I'm not saying that to tell people, you know, try to get free readings, but, but they just feel that compulsion. They're like, I have this message. I have to tell you. Yeah. They, they fight that a lot. The good ones yeah. because, and then they'll feel like, is this appropriate? I'm in a grocery store right now, or I'm in right. line, you know, or this or that. But oftentimes it seems like whether it's the other side helping coordinate things or what, I don't know. It seems like they have yeah. a broader view of, things than we do here but it seems like it works out a lot of the time where the person really needed that or was hoping for that and it, and mm. and they got something meaningful so that can happen another thing and this what i just told you was kind of an example of that or what we call drop-ins mm. it's like somebody's getting a reading and all of a sudden they get stuff that's not for them but then they start recognizing well my neighbor just had this kid die and yeah the kid liked the skateboard and he did this and he worked at a pizza shop and, you know, let me connect you there. Or they take all this information down and and then validate it through the neighbor and find out later, you know, this is all right on target. Those are pretty impressive cases as well. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, I guess, two things in general, and they're sort of connected is the testing and also sort of the skeptics and skepticism is necessary. And I think you say that yourself, you know, that we need yeah. the skeptics, we need good skeptics, but we also have this sort of profession now of pseudo skeptics. <laughs> Debunkers. Um, yeah. Yeah. And they aren't really skeptical. No, they, you know, they like to call themselves skeptics, but true skepticism comes in with an open mind yeah. uh, into any situation wanting to investigate the truth, really to get at it, you know, get at what, what's the real reality of the situation here. From what I've seen in the evidence out there is, you know, a lot of these folks, going back to Randy's million dollar challenge and the games yeah. they played with that to make it look like, oh, no one can do this stuff when they move the rules around and, mm -hmm. and play games with people and then make them sign over the, this agreement that was totally egregious. Right. Um, to, you know, but a lot of these folks, and there's a bunch of them out there, but they're, they're coming at it really with preconceived worldview. 
that's based on secular atheism, you know, and it's, it's a dogma. It's just like a religious dogma, but it's a dogma of nihilism, of hopelessness and of despair and saying, hey, this is all there is. Now, they can't prove what they believe. They can't prove that physical existence is all there is or that the brain equals consciousness. I don't think it does, or you wouldn't be able to do the kinds of things I just talked about. Right. <laughs> so, you know, so I talk about that and I'm not, you know, you're always going to have people with that extreme view because people want to be right or feel secure or safe. And so maybe they feel safer or maybe it feels makes them feel more intellectually strong than somebody else who's open to this stuff like you or me. Well, I think the smarter people are willing to look outside the box and look at all the evidence and make up their own mind, you know. So I don't tell people how to think or what to think. A lot of them do, you know, yeah. I'm just going to present my story and my evidence and you make up your own mind. And maybe, maybe it stirs you to read more material or look into other things uh, in this vein. So, but I will credit them in, in a few ways. You know, one of the things they talk about a lot goes into the protocols they set up for my certification method. Now, the whole purpose of this really goes back to the release of my first book, Soul Shift, Finding Where the Dead Go. And that book was really the memoir that came out after my son Brandon passed. And it's while while it's not as scholarly a book as the new one, it is it does give a lot of validations and, and information, I think, is of value. And anyhow, uh, I forgot where I was going with this. <laughs> oh, well, you were talking about the benefits of the oh, skeptics yeah. in terms of how you set up the... Yeah. testing yeah so yeah there's after that book came out i was flooded with requests for mediums so people would come to me and say hey i read your book i loved it or helped me so much or in some cases it saved my life which is pretty crazy and makes you feel like you're doing something worthwhile but people were asking can you give me the name of a good medium well at that time i knew a handful of really good ones but they were popular some were expensive. They had long wait lists. So I thought to myself, there's got to be more resources out there, just the undiscovered talent, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I talked to a, a couple of people that I knew that were in the research field. One I'm closest to is Tricia Robertson of the Scottish Society of Psychical Research. Uh, she's really sharp. She's done uh, work with uh, Professor Archie Roy in Scotland, who is one of the preeminent UK scientists uh, of the last hundred years. And so I talked to her about protocols, and then I had participated, as I, as you mentioned earlier, in a in an experiment with the University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies with Dr. Emily Williams Kelly, and so I looked at those protocols that she had explained to me how she grades it. So I put all this together into my own set of protocols. Now the difference is, I wasn't looking to enter into a science journal. I was just trying to find good people. So I didn't want it to be quite as rigid, but I definitely would address. Um, the protocol in a way so that cold reading was not a possibility. So that's one of the primary things that the, the bunker type pseudo skeptics will claim is cold reading, you know, or warm reading, meaning you got information about somebody either in advance or through social media or whatever. So those two things are wiped out through my protocols. There's no way they could happen. Um, so I developed this program back in 2014. I now, you know, over the years, um, have certified about 40 people and they all had to go through a rigorous process of five blinded readings. And I've actually upped the bar over the years of the percentage accuracy they have to have to pass because it, it could be, you know, there's some su subjectivity to it because what's happening is they're giving a reading to someone via Zoom with no video, not knowing who they're going to read for. They're told the first name of the sitter at the time the reading starts and then they have to give this entire reading and then it's recorded after the fact the sitter is required to transcribe it and take all this all of what's said and break it into individual statements that are subsequently graded as correct incorrect indeterminable or they can assign it correct with a bonus either a two point bonus or a five point bonus depending on specificity the two point bonus bonus might be your son's uh, first initial is T and the kid's name was Thomas. Okay. Well, a five point bonus might be, Hey, his first name's Thomas. So it's just, you know, how, how meaningful or like the kid's favorite food was pizza. Okay. Maybe that's a two. Well, pizza was his favorite food. But if you say his favorite food was pizza with pepperoni, anchovies and bell peppers, and that was accurate, that would be five point bonus. Mm. But those are subjective calls that go to the sitter to decide. 
We will, though, when we grade them and go through what the sitter gives us, we will challenge that, too, because sometimes if somebody's a little too generous or a little too harsh, we're going to go back to them and find out, well, you know, why did you give them a bonus on this one? It doesn't seem that significant or whatever. But we put all that together and basically they have to <clears throat> they have to score at least a 75 now to pass and that they have to have at least 65 percent accuracy so they could be just 65% accurate and get two bonus fives and make 75, or they could be 75% accurate with no bonus or anything over that, you know, is great. You know, if it's 85% accurate and they get, you know, 10 points of bonus, that's a 95 score. So that's kind of how the scoring works. And through that, you know, like I said, we've, we've passed 40 people and I've, I've upped the ante on the scoring method at least a couple of times over the years, just because I really want the best people I can get because they're dealing with grieving folks right. and they're fragile. Yeah. Have you ever done retesting as you have changed some of the protocols? I haven't because I felt like the people that passed at the time, they, I do know they were good and they've had good reviews and I didn't, I didn't feel like it was fair for me to maybe go back and, and up the ante on them since they, those were the protocols at the time they passed. But, you know, I, I have thought about different ways of, of addressing, you know, who's really the best and who's not as good. And so we added to the website this rating system where the actual sitters who get the readings can go in there and rate them on a five-star scale. Hmm. So that is another method to kind of address that. Okay. All right. Well, and, you know, kind of stepping back just for a second, I just wanted to say that I agree with you in terms of the... Um, skeptics that it seems to be a dogmatism rather than actual skepticism um and i i would say that the worldview that they hold i would describe it as materialistic yeah uh, that matter is all there is and i just want to share one of the things that i've kind of stumbled across you know i'm a college professor and one of the things that i have to teach is logic and critical thinking and in the critical thinking class, I am supposed to address pseudoscience. <laughs> and the there's a logic book that I use. I don't necessarily use it for critical thinking, but at the end of it, there is this whole chapter on pseudoscience and it talks about ESP and it flatly states there's no evidence for this. Which and <laughs> it's a lie because I know there is a lot of good evidence and I see that as indoctrination and I cannot in good conscience stand there in front of the class and say, you aren't supposed to believe this because there's no evidence when I know that in fact that there is. And I see the skeptics is doing kind of something similar where it's indoctrination and dogmatism rather than true skepticism, which would be having, like you said, the open mind and looking at the actual evidence. Yeah. And the, a lot of them, the first one I encountered where I, I was doing a book signing for my first book and some hardcore skeptic guy was in the bookstore, the Barnes and Noble at the time. And he starts challenging me and everything. I'm like, but he brought up Karl Popper. So mm, I was yeah. looking up, well, well, who's Karl Popper? So I, you know, he's, a, he was a philosopher, you know, a professor of philosophy who comes up with this suggestion like, well, if it can't be falsified, it's not real science. Well, can dark matter be uh, right. falsified? So it, it's it's a subjective line that they've drawn to suit themselves, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, as opposed to we're looking at everything. Can you study something inductively or just deductively? Right. Can you look at, because if we're ever going to get out of this box and learn a lot more about our universe or whether it's a multiverse or a universe and consciousness the nature of consciousness we have to get beyond that or we're yeah. just going to get we're going to be stuck here forever yeah no i agree with that and that's you know before we began uh recording you asked me what my interest was in this material and that's one of them is i have this profound interest in consciousness and consciousness studies and i i also agree uh, your worldview you describe in the book is that mind or consciousness is primary and I agree with that. And I think more and more people are actually starting to get along that lines. And I always, you know, talking about science and 
the way science works and supposed to work, there's always something that science can't explain and anomaly mm -hmm. that will lead to the next shift in science. And I yeah. think that the anomaly right now is consciousness. And because of that, we have to look at these things that the skeptics want to just reject out of hand, because if we don't, like you said, we're going to be stuck. Yeah. I, I mean, and what I'll come back to is just like the observer effect in quantum mechanics that mine has been proven to affect matter repeatedly yeah. in double slit experiments. And Dean Radin recently conducted an experiment within the last few years, just reiterating that the observer effect is real. So mm -hmm. how can mind affect matter if, if, if consciousness isn't primary? Right. You know, and right. then and, and entanglements, the other one that is just baffling to people like, well, OK, entanglement states that two particles which have ever come into contact in a special way can be separated as far apart as opposite ends of the universe. And whatever happens in, to one is instantly reflected in the other. Well, how can that be if at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, it would take approximately, what, 20 billion years to cross the entire universe? So that tells you there's something else here going on that we can't see or understand. And I'm not saying I'm qualified to say what that is or how it works, but I'm comfortable with a mystery. Yeah. But I don't think we should stop looking either. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think that that's, that's exactly right, that we need to be comfortable with the mystery. And it also seems like, you know, as you had noted, that the skeptics often have this sort of nihilistic view of everything. And it's like, well, do you want there to be, do you want to live in a nihilistic universe or one where it's kind of miraculous? Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, it is, it is miraculous in many ways. If you just yeah. look at the odds of us being on this planet yeah. with just the right conditions for biological life to exist and all that kind of stuff, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. And now, you know, they're doing now that we have the new telescope, they're looking to see, well, what other planets might be able to harbor this biological life? But then a lot of the people looking are still thinking, well, biological life is the only kind of life, too. You right. know, not that there's more than that. Yeah. But but nonetheless, I love astronomy and I love yeah, I love this new research. I think it's awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So a, a couple more questions for you here. I, I'm curious about the kind of the development of these abilities. And I guess my first question is how common do you think mediumship abilities are? So here's what I've kind of figured out, or at least the way I see it. Everybody has some degree of psychic ability, everybody, whether it's just a light intuition or whatever, but most of us ignore it or don't recognize it because it's so subtle and maybe the reason for that is because of the society that's been developed with the industrial revolution since the industrial revolution where look we've got so much stimuli between you know television computers smartphones and everything else we we can't even hear that little voice that i described to you as right. i felt that day in that church right. i had to like shut everything out to hear it or to get that and it was barely there it's so subtle but I think everybody has it to some degree. Now, having said that, I think some people are born with a much greater aptitude. My dad was one, you know, and I know a lot of people that have that higher level of aptitude. I think one of the very best in the world today is Gordon Smith in Scotland. He's phenomenal. He's the closest thing to my dad that I've seen in terms of being able to provide that detailed information, rapid fire, and totally confident and comfortable in, in, a, in a crowd situation. But I don't know what percentage of the population, but I think the really top mediums, it's a small percentage. Is it 1%? Is it one-tenth of 1%? 1 I don't know. Right. But it's it's a very select group. I still think some people may have some ability, and maybe they can develop it to a greater degree and become closer to that. But maybe they'll never be as good as the other ones just because they don't have the innate ability. I almost look at it like in sports. It's like, okay, you could have had a Kobe Bryant who had – this tremendous drive and great athletic ability. So he went to this certain point or you could take some, um, somebody who's just like one of these guys who camps under the basket, works really hard and can block shots and rebound, but they're never going to have that kind of success. Cause it's just not, it's not available to them because of the attributes they were born with. Hmm. Okay. But do you think that, I mean, if everyone or many people have some kind of innate, 
the possibility let's put it that way that like the innate possibility of mm -hmm. mediumship or psychic abilities you know if someone's not good at basketball they can practice you know they can practice a lot so can someone practice to try to um, build up their psychic or mediumship abilities they can definitely i'm not saying they're ever going to be at that top level but right, they can right. improve my dad actually had a book and right. this, I didn't tell you this story about the book. And I don't know if we have time, but yeah. one of the first readings I got are the early readings with a woman named Alison Dubois, who became famous later because she was the subject matter of a show, a network show called Medium. Right. The way I met her was kind of interesting. It was one month after Brandon's passing. I was watching a local TV uh, news broadcast in Phoenix, and they showed this study that was going on at the time at the University of Arizona with blinded readings and mediums and statistically tracking results. And lo and behold, that medium was Alison Dubois. Uh, the people behind them, she could not see or communicate with until after it was over. And the information she gave was really specific and interesting. And then they validated it. So I thought, geez, I'd love to get in that lab someday. And I'd love to get a reading from her. And the very next day, I get a call from a man named Jerry Concer, who knew my dad. And he lived in Dallas, Texas. So he didn't even see that. And he's like, hey, Mark, I know what you've been through, and I know someone who might be able to help you. Her name's Allison Dubois. Mm -hmm. so, and then he gave me contact information. It took like eight months for me to get, or seven months to get booked because she was so backlogged. But interestingly, and this is back to the my dad's book, two weeks before I saw Allison Dubois, a man gave me a, a box that had this whole ma type manuscript in it. It was eight and a half by 11 pages typed. It was called Your Psychic Potential. A Guide to Psychic Development by Dr. Richard Ireland, my dad. I'm like, where'd you get this? And he says, well, your dad gave it to me for safekeeping before he passed because you were out of state at the time. I said, well, it's been 12 years. Why are you giving this to me now? And he says, I don't know. I just feel like I'm supposed to. Hmm. So he gave me that. Two weeks later, I meet with Allison Dubois. One of the first things she says to me is, I have your dad here and he's showing me a book, but I feel it's his book and he's handing it to you to take forward. Does that make sense to you? I'm like, yeah, it sure does. <laughs> but anyhow, so my dad wrote a book about that. And it really was based on workshops he did at the time in the late 60s and early 70s to help develop these, uh, for, help people develop these abilities. And I even back then, I saw a wide range. Some people, you know, it was funny because he'd say, oh, so-and-so psychic or so-and-so psychic. I'm like, they're not psychic. I don't see them doing what you do. But I didn't understand at the time the degrees of ability, you know. Mm -hmm. but, but to your point, in kind of a long way, Yes, people can develop it beyond where it is today if they're so interested and motivated to do so. Yeah, yeah. Because what I gathered from your book is that one of the key things that someone can do is meditate, meditation. Mm -hmm. And I also liked, let me see if I can find it here. I do have a quote of yours here. Yeah, that it seems like what you did was you focused on spiritual growth. And I think that the quote I have from you here is, I wanted to retain a singular focus on spiritual growth, anticipating that certain gifts could possibly develop as a byproduct. Yeah, that's how I look at it. And I think that's the, for me, that's the appropriate way to go about it, as opposed to, do I want my ego boosted by having some ability somebody else doesn't have, right. or do I want to be of service in right. whatever way I'm supposed to be? One of the, you know, common kind of gifts, if you will, that people get is healing, the mm -hmm. ability to heal. And whether that's physically or emotionally or whatever, and that's a very valuable thing too. It Maybe it doesn't bring the fame necessarily <laughs> yeah. that you could get from some other aspect of being very psychic, but it's it's a very necessary gift or ability that, that some people will develop. Mm -hmm. My my uncle actually told me, he says, one of, you know, maybe the first things that you should do is like focus on on developing healing. But just let it be whatever you're supposed to be to the universe or whatever, you know, let it let it be for the to, to be a greatest service and greatest personal growth for what you're supposed to do on your path. So a uh, element of trust and humility, it seems like. I think so. I think so. I mean, I'm not saying that all all the mediums or psychics I've ever seen or that are out there have that. Right. Um, maybe they did at one time and then they got, got big for their britches or whatever yeah but, but i think it's good and i know many that really are that way and like gordon smith as i mentioned before is definitely mm -hmm. that way and i know like deborah martin is and there's a lot of others as well <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. One of the things that fascinates me is that, and this is to your point that many people have this ability that they, maybe they just don't know it is that I've had this experience where people have said things to me where they are answering a question or giving me something that has meaning to me, but they have no idea that they're saying it, you know, or that it's going to have that kind of value. And I've had that happen too. And I've actually been the person saying those things sometimes and you don't even realize like what you're saying would have that or that you may be being guided to say something, you know, you feel like it's you or maybe you're wondering, or you just feel inspired to say something. So that's interesting. Yes. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems that from a personal perspective, and I think that this is the way you kind of describe it in the book is that it's something that it, it kind of just comes to you, but then what happens is often there's a little bit of doubt like, oh, that can't be it, or that we allow the workings of the analytical mind to take over. Right, right. And that's what a lot of the better mediums had to come to deal with, I guess, or get over. Yeah. Part of it is just putting your personal pride or ego on the shelf so you share what you get and you don't try and analyze it and say, well, I can't say that. That doesn't make any sense. But you just share what you get. Now, the meaning of that may be, different to somebody you know or you know they may be hesitant to say something but if they say it it turns out to be right on the money for what needed to be said but yet you know your your ego mind or whatever you want to call it might make you try and hesitate yeah 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 and that's why i suggested that trust was a huge element to this because you have to trust what you're receiving yeah yeah you do I will say, you know, on the time, and for me, it's, I'm not like my dad, but, you know, I've had stuff come through that's pretty impressive. It's more sporadic, Mm -hmm. but I will say that sometimes I I just, I feel like I'm tuned in more and then it's like, okay, I feel like I have a knowing about something and I'm like, I really trust it because it just felt like, okay, that's it. I felt that Mm -hmm. that time that that was the thing, you know, that was the, that was the, the flow, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I don't get that all the time. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Uh, do you wish you did? Do you wish you were a little bit more like your dad in that regard? I guess not as much as might people might expect. And mainly that's, I think, because he his life was hell in many ways because mm. of just dealing with skeptics and constant, you know, constantly being challenged and, and all those kinds of things. And he was great with the challenge. He was pretty durable, if you will. Mm. But after decades and decades of your whole life dealing with that, it, it can wear yeah. you down. And, you know, I have other interests too. I think if right. I just plunge completely into that, then it's like, okay, um, am I still qualified to write from a journalistic perspective mm. as a, as an unbiased observer, you know, yeah. or if I set up shop as a medium and, and think I get to that, put it in the work to get to that point to do readings. I don't know that I have the desire to do that. If, if I can share something with somebody, a message here or there that comes to me, that's helpful. That's great. But I don't know that I really want to be my dad. Okay. That's fair. Uh, I, I, I know we're starting to run out of time, but I wanted to ask you if you could say a little bit more about the uh, organization that you started helping parents heal. Sure. So this all started really back in like 20, late 2011, 2010, 2011. No, it was, I think it's 2010. There's a woman in Scottsdale, there's a name Elizabeth Boyson. She had had a son pass on a mountain as well, but it was in the Himalayas. He was on a, on a school trip and they took the bus up the hill too fast and he died of altitude sickness. Mm-hmm. Um, I came to meet her because I was doing a workshop so shortly before that. And a woman attended the workshop who had moved to Arizona from Florida and she says, hey, I'm new here. So I signed up for this workshop to meet people locally of a similar mind. She goes, I'm actually a medium. And and she, and she had told me about this other woman whose son had just passed. I said, you know what? Give her the copy of this book and my contact information. It was my first book, just in case she wants to reach out. And so she did that. And, and within like two days, I get a call from Elizabeth. She says, hi, this is Elizabeth. I read your book, you know, in two days. And I want to meet you and your wife. So we met her and everything and learned more about her. 
And what had happened, she had met Suzanne Wilson, who's the, the medium that attended my workshop, because it's a kind of a long story, but through a third party, Suzanne gave a bunch of affirmations to a third party person who didn't know anything about Elizabeth's son that turned turned out to be highly accurate about her son. And that and she'd never even heard of what a medium is or anything, but that got her intrigued. So anyhow, Elizabeth, we'd met, she's like, hey, I started this group, this local singular group called Parents United and Loss. Would you like to be my first speaker at my first meeting? And I'm like, okay. So I went to the meeting, I spoke and told my story and all this. And then she started having regular meetings like once a month. And I went to as many as I could. Fast forward to 2011, I was leaving a job situation and figuring out what I was going to do next. And another medium friend, Tina Powers in Tucson, I was talking to her and she says, Mark, I really think like helping parents who have been through the same thing as you have been is really your life's calling, your main calling, you know, and I think that's, you know, maybe think about what you could do with that. So I started mulling it over and I thought, well, you know, what Elizabeth put together is great, but it's just one group in one place. I said, what if she blew that out, you know, put a website up, got a newsletter put together and maybe blueprinted her process so that other affiliate locations could come in all over the place. So I call her up and and threw the idea at her and I said, and would you consider a new name, maybe like Helping Parents Heal? She goes, oh, I love that name. Let's do that. And so fast forward to today, you know, we did this and it really just it went crazy. And now we have over 100 affiliates worldwide. We have like 25,000. I think at the time of the book, it was 24. It's up to 25,000 okay. members worldwide. And we we had our first ever conference in 2022 uh, drew 900 people from around the world and we're going to have another one in 2024 and it was the most healing thing you could imagine we're what differentiates our group from others because there are others but we're the only one that allows the open discussion of spiritual experiences and evidence mm. for the afterlife mm. and that's like i said before the hope piece in the healing process right so like at our conference we're going to have yeah, uh, Anita Morjani, who is an NDE survivor, we're going to have, we've, we've had, oh, who else? We've got Gordon Smith, who I mentioned before, Suzanne Giesman. So we have a mix of mediums, researchers, NDE experiencers, and things like that. And then there'll be these keynote events where people can hear the stories and meet them and so on and so forth, and just mingle with other parents who've been through the process of losing a kid. And like I said, it was very healing. During that, I probably had six people approach me and said, I just want you to know you saved my life. Now, whether that was through my books or, or the organization, I didn't ask, but you know, it, it told me we were doing good stuff. And the people at the hotel were freaked out before this event happened. They were afraid this is going to be such a downer having all these people here. Well, they later said this was the most fun, upbeat group we've ever seen. And I think it's because the energy that was there was so positive and and the hopefulness and then making new friends who you could relate to just had this huge tidal wave of positive energy. So that's where we are today. And it's, you know, it's, it's very rewarding. I will give Elizabeth credit. I'm chairman of the board. So I provide, you know, direction with the board on the overall focus of the organization. But she does the grunt work day to day with mm-hmm. another woman named Irene Uvalidis. They run the organization day to day. All the Facebook posts that are like going crazy and all the logistics for the conference planning. And then the Zoom meetings we have with guest speakers and then working with all the affiliates and all that kind of stuff. So they're going to have to learn to delegate soon because yeah. they're going to be overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like an amazing conference and event and organization. And I can definitely see how it would be so helpful to be able to freely share some of these experiences without people thinking that you're crazy. Cause I think that's the fear. People think that, Oh, if I share this experience that, you know, lights came on at a specific time, or I heard this song Mm -hmm. at this specific time, or, you know, my, my, my dad or my mom or my sister or something came to me in a dream. I I think to be able to share that would be incredibly profound and healing. So I could see why it would be more upbeat than somber. 
It is, you know, and the other organizations, I'm not going to put them down because they right. do what they can do, but right. that's how we've gotten a lot of folks because they went to some of those meetings and then they started wanting to share that more. So, well, no, you can't do that here. Oh, yeah. So we thought right off the bat, well, yeah, you can do that here. Yeah. Let's yeah. do that, in fact. And it's a critical part of our meetings for people to share that stuff openly. And we're not tied to any dogma or any specific right. religion. We have people from all backgrounds. So it's kind of an all-inclusive kind of thing. And it's really about helping parents heal. Like I said, the name yeah. says, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyone that brings hope to the world and healing to the world has my seal of approval. I think that the world's in desperate need of both of those. So yeah, I agree. Thank you though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. So I know that we are pretty much out of time, but let me ask you a couple of very quick final questions. One is what do you have coming up next? Well, I'm launching the book right now that's coming out on October 10th. Of course, well, by the time the air, this airs, it may already be out. It's called The Persistence of the Soul. Here's what it looks like. And it's uh, basically the book you read. So if people are interested in that, it's it's like a, I would say it's a half personal journey and half scholarly kind of book intermingled. So that's coming out. I have a whole bunch of podcasts and different shows that are coming up that I'm I'm on, some of which were already recorded that you, you can see, and I'll put them on the media page on my site, and then I'll have a, an event page on my site that lists what's upcoming as well. I'm working on another book that's really about what it was like for me to grow up with the father that I had, okay. yeah. but that's probably still a year or more off right now. Uh, so I would just encourage people, if you want to go to my site, to scope out the books, to get a connection to the Helping Parents Heal site, or a link to my dad's site where I have videos of him doing live demonstration on the Steve Allen show in 1971 that are pretty cool, or any of my other media appearances or links to other organizations, that's markirelandauthor.com. It's Mark with a K, Ireland like the country, the word author, markirelandauthor.com. Okay, wonderful. Interestingly enough, when I was reading the book yesterday, it I had the idea I was going to ask you if you ever thought about writing a book specifically about your relationship or your experience with your dad. But, and I didn't ask because you have a lot of that in this book, but I did. Yeah, I'm running out of material. No. Yeah, nah, <laughs> I'm nah. using it all. Yeah, no, it seems to me that you probably have plenty of material to draw from. Um, there's I think more. That, and, yeah. you know, quite frankly, there's so many stories I've received from people around the world that have emailed me or given me handwritten notes that are just really remarkable about yeah. their experience with my dad. I'll share you one of the craziest ones with you now, if you want, before we wrap yeah, up. Please, please. So I was doing a speaking event um, a number of years ago and a woman approached me and she says, Hey, Mark, I want to share a story with you about your dad. I said, okay, cool. Well, she gave me a printout she'd already made, but she says, I'll go ahead and tell it to you too. And her name was Norma Poling. She says, I first saw your dad in 1963 at an auxiliary event for some hospital and, you know, he was taped and blindfolded and everything. And he asked us to write in questions and send them up. And I thought, I was thinking about what to ask. And at first I thought, should I ask, will I have a fourth child? And I thought, no, I'll just ask if I'll get my master's degree. So she sent the master's degree question up to him and that was it. And at near the end, he said, yeah, you, you will get your master's degree. And she later did. Well, then five years passed. She came back to see my dad another time. And this time um, she sent up a new question and my dad finally got around to her and he says, oh, Norma, Norma Poling, I see you had that fourth child. <laughs> yeah, wow. So this is something that she never, ever wrote down even five years ago. She thought of five years ago. So where's the limit to, you know, <laughs> right, right. What, what could be done, you know? Right, right. Yeah, I can I can imagine that having a father like that would be amazing and incredible. But also at the same time, what immediately went through my mind was, but I couldn't sneak anything. I couldn't <laughs> get away with anything. Yeah, my my one of the stories, I don't know if I put it in this book or the other one, I think it was in the first one. My mom, when they were first married, she was trying to become a vegetarian. She'd gone a couple of months doing a really good job and one day she broke down and went out and got a burger and then she came back home and my dad gets home that evening. And the first thing he says to her is, so, so Shirley, how'd you enjoy your hamburger today? <laughs> so, yeah. um, and my brother, he was 10 years older than me. So, but when I was, you know, I guess 
six or seven, he'd have been, you know, hot rodding around. And my dad would stop that. He had somebody buying him beer when he's underage. He stopped that, you know, yeah. but in my dad's view, he's like, well, I, I let you guys get away with some things. Cause I, I want you to have a normal childhood too. Yeah, but yeah. to us, it didn't seem like he let us get away with a lot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mark, you know, I wish you the best with the book. I, like I said, I enjoyed the book and I thought it was a great combination of personal experiences and the scientific evidence. And there's a lot we didn't go into because I want people to actually read the book, but I will put a link for the book in the show notes and video description, as well as for your website so that people can go and find out more about the Helping Parents Heal organization or the medium certification program or you and uh, all your media appearances and what you're working on. Thanks so much, Nick. It was great to meet you and talk to you. Yes. Well, uh, the pleasure was all mine. So thank you. And that's a wrap on episode 108 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you're a part of my YouTube audience. If you like what I do here on Rebel Spirit Radio, then please consider signing up for my Patreon. Some of the perks for patrons includes uh, early access to videos, shout outs to members, a members only Facebook page, access to the Rebel Spirit Radio Discord server, and a monthly book club where we explore books discussed on the podcast, spiritual and philosophical classics, and books related to the cocktail apocalypse. I mean, remember, I am a professor of philosophy and religious studies. So consider the book club an ongoing classroom where you can go as deep as you want with me and other rebel spirits. You can find the link for my Patreon in the show notes and video description. Of course, if you would prefer to make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. I still have a lot of big plans for the podcast and the YouTube channel. Right now, this is all a labor of love, so your support will not only help me continue with what I do here, but will also help me grow my channel and the podcast. I will be tremendously grateful for any support that you can provide. Another way that you can help the podcast is to share it with friends, family, coworkers, you know the drill, and share it on social media too. That really is one of the best ways you can help and support the podcast. Help me grow my audience. As I always say, I'm here on the front range now doing missionary work in regards to religion, spirituality, and ecology, psychedelics, and consciousness, and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with the sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, and you know, I sure hope that you do then please, by all means, help me share the good news. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to or watching Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.